Hello, hello out there in the world. <laughs> and summer is amongst us. And we like to say some wonderful things. First of all, newsflash, the whole East Coast area is under the North American Canadian smoke. So for the first time, we're actually seeing this San Francisco fog <laughs> brought in coming way up north from Alberta, Canada. And coming down and hitting the whole New York area. And it is absolutely crazy. I, I This morning, it felt like a burning sun. And then all of a sudden, now around showtime, the air is getting thick that you can cut it with a scissor. So that's part of the world news that's going on here in the East Coast of America. And as well, I want to say, take this moment. Once again, I've been helping out Faith Fanzine Magazine. They did a great job of taking the stories of the New York City metropolitan area of the nightclub scene of the 1990s. You can get your spring issue at all these wonderful stores. Casa Magazines, Mulberry Iconic, Iconic Cafe, Magazine Cafe, Soho News, Head High Brooklyn, Rough Trade, Razor and Tape. And also selected record shops. You'll see Junior Vasquez's story, the 1990s of what went on. As well, all the DJs, including myself, Camacho, Underground Network, Louis Vega, Barbara Tucker, you name it, it's historical. Welcome to True House Stories. Yo, me, Lenny Fontana, coming from Nueva York. And I can't say the windy city. We are the dirty city right now. Because back in the 1970s, man, there was a time when sanitation wasn't picked up. There was a big strike going on. Where President Ford said, drop dead New York City when we were asking for help. <laughs> Those that don't remember, maybe too young, weren't born yet. But I'm going to say this. We're going to take the camera to the Windy City, Chicago. I love me some Chicago. And when I put this man's picture up the last few days, people thanked me through fan mail and said, you know, I didn't realize the people that are predecessors that are still doing the things today. because. I know we always strive to look forward. We're always striving to do our best. A lot of us don't like to go historical or legacy and like to talk about all that stuff that went on, but I do. And I like to bring that stuff out because I found through True House Stories, we've been able to get the real information from the people that mean something. This man who I'm about ready to bring up, has more remixes in the big-time pop world. I'm going to say pop because in the 80s and the 90s, he was the most cutting-edge guy. He was the go-to remixer producer. Came out with some hot house records. Now, I was thinking about this today, preparing. You know, we've heard from other Chicago people about the battling, the DJ wars, the producer wars, all the stuff that went on back in the day. People were fighting to be number one or who stole whose track. Things like that did go on. 
record labels that didn't do right by their artists. Now, in today's world of being sued and producers are, and writers are fighting to get their stuff back. And some have been winning and some haven't, but we wish them the best as well. When Michael Jackson asked you to remix a record, who does he call when he was alive? Steve So Curly. When I wanted to jack my body, you know what I'm saying? Jacking. What the hell is jacking? And he'll explain that. That's what I'm talking about. Jam Silk was created. Steve So Curly made that sound. He did all these great records. He did all these great remixes. When ID Records owned it. And a lot of guys came out of the stable. Eastmood, Maurice Joshua. A lot of guys came after him. But there's always the guy that you have to always look back to to say where it all began. So with no further ado, let's bring him right up here, Mr. Steve Silk Hurley. Yo, what up, boy? Steve Silk Montana. Can I do your intro now? No. <laughs> you can do my intro. Anytime. We don't have that much time to do that kind of intro, man. But I had a letter by you know, know where it all comes from. You brother. ain't chopped liver, man. Not at all. <laughs> We love you, man. You know that. You know, you're one of our heroes, bro. You you know, without you, you know, I always said this. You set a lot of things that didn't exist pre to that. You know, there was remixing going on the disco era and stuff. But, you know, you guys did a lot of stuff out of Chicago that with that new sound at the time, house music. And, of course, we're going to get into that. But first of all, how are you doing? How's it Doing great. My uh, one of my daughters just had another baby, so uh, that was just like on June first. So we've been celebrating that. Well, you're on top of the world right great now. Great thing. That's number six. So hey, wow, good for you, man. Yeah, can't ask for anything. Yeah, I'm just just excited for life, you know. Yeah, just excited for a new life and a new way to carry on the family, the family name and tradition. That's good. And how yeah. many kids? How many kids do you have? Before we say grandchildren. Yep, I got four. Yeah. And they they all they all do what they love. So it's 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 really it's really a blessing to see them out there doing what they're doing. My namesake, Steve Jr., he's doing basketball training. He's always into basketball just like like me. Yeah, Skip and I, we you know, we hoop all the time. And yeah, he grew up watch you know, watching me hoop. And then he, at a young age, I put the ball in his hand and he fell in love just like me. So now he's training all these kids from, he's got like little dribblers and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff going from all the way from age, like three or four to high school. He's a high school coach. Yeah. So, yeah. And then my daughters, they all have their talents. My daughter sings, oldest daughter sings, other one writes and other one's a nurse. I mean, about to be a nurse next year. So they're all just kind of in their own lanes. And I'm cool with them not going too far into the music industry because <laughs> it's a whole different thing now than what it was when we started. Oh, yeah, it's a lot different now. But we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. Um, as I tell everyone, we got to get right down to where it starts for you, you know, as a young kid. Because now you're talking about your children. So how does music find you as a young Steve, you know, growing up? Or you find the music or music? Uh, I would say... Um, 
I go back to <clears throat> me falling in love with music. I think maybe started with the Jackson Five when they had the Forty Fives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I want you back. My sister bought I want you back and ABC and all that stuff. And I was I was in love with that stuff. And I wanted I wanted to be Michael Jackson. I wanted to be Tito, even whoever, just anybody in the. We we used to act like we were the Jacksons, but <clears throat> but that was that wasn't my lane. So I didn't really go into that. But later, I just love the music, to be honest. And then my father was a very um, music driven person. He had a huge collection of like even 78s and 45s and albums, you know, classic albums. And he started making tapes and he had eight tracks. He had like, I know a lot of people don't know what those are, but they, there's like so many different mediums that I saw. I saw every medium known to man. You know, I've been fortunate enough to see them all and experience them all. And um, my father was a big influence because he made these these cassette tapes and we would listen to them when we were on the road in the car, you know, driving um, on a vacation or whatever. And he would just have this music playing. So I ended up kind of following his footsteps and getting my own boom box and making my own tapes and playing music for people everywhere I went, you know, whether I was working at the grocery store and putting the putting the boom box on the intercom system and playing it while we're stocking the shelves or whatever. Like I just every place you saw me, you saw me with that boom box. I was the original radio. Radio. <laughs> it was like that back then. You know, you carried yeah. your own radio. It wasn't yeah. like now with the phone. You yeah. had to have, I mean, and the bigger the radio, the better you, the more cool you are. Yeah. What a pain. I mean, I didn't have a huge one. I had a friend that carried those years. It was like Sir in Vegas compared to compared to mine. I was like, wow, what the heck? Where'd you get that thing from? That's 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 what it's about. You know, people don't get that, that that was the era. Yeah. So all that all that pretty much to answer your question, though, all of that kind of contributed to me wanting to produce music. And, you know. To fast forward a little bit in my from my childhood to my teen years, I I witnessed uh, Kenny Jam and Jason and Peter Lewicki on a station called Disco DAI mixing records. That's what made me want to learn how to DJ and and mix records. Like I love playing music for people. I I went to people's houses, you know, when I was in um, grammar school and and early high school, and was choosing the music. And like even my eighth grade, I guess technically I DJed my own eighth grade graduation party because I was the one putting the music on. But DJing didn't exist in my world or in uh, you know in the worlds that I was in uh, at that time when when I was that young. But that was laying the foundation for me to later on want to mix music. So when I heard you know Kenny Jason, he's like a huge influence of mine because he was. He was making it sound like it was one song playing continuously. I was like, wow, he's doing that. And then I tried to take my brother's stereo system and pushing in buttons on it so I could play two things at once. And and all of a sudden, uh, I got something on beat. And I was like, wow. So this is, I have to, I have to get some turntables, you know. So then I just ended Did up. Did you see anybody physically doing this pre to you getting those turntables? Because I guess you're listening to the radio. Kenny's on the radio at that time, right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really see him. I saw people. First of all, my parents were super strict. So any parties I went to, I probably snuck out for. But when I saw people 
playing music, they weren't necessarily mixing. They were just playing all the hot songs. So that was kind of appealing to me. But when I saw that you could actually mix the stuff together and then I started hearing like the hip hop records that were coming out, the earlier hip hop records, um, like your Curtis Blows and you know, um, Sugar Hill Gang and all. And the, uh, These that's are the breaks. Yeah, all that. Even before that, the uh, the uh, what's the the Christmas rapping and all yep. that stuff, and then I I started learning about you know how people were scratching the records and all that stuff. I, that was a, that was appealing to me more appealing than just putting a record on, letting it go off, and then the next one come on. That wasn't really appealing to me because I felt like you know that was more like okay, you get on the mic and you intro that record and then you go into that. That wasn't my thing. I was more of a mad scientist who wants to try to do something that nobody else could do, you know, that's outside the box. So when I saw what Kenny and them were doing, I, I felt like that was outside the box and I, nobody in my neighborhood knew how to do it. So it was something that I could latch on to, to be unique and just kind of find my own way. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's pretty much how I got off to my start. Yeah. Because I remember at that time, scratching was becoming part of the routine now. You know, yeah, because <clears throat> the flash. I mean, even you heard in some of the records, like chick, 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 you know, real simple scratch, and not like later on they were doing that fast. What they used to call that? Where they would switch the yeah, transform, yeah. transforming, right? The transformer yeah. version of of it. It was very like eh, they would do it with good times with the string, eh, eh, good eh, eh, you know, like that. Yeah, I was going. I was doing. A, I was more of a beat juggler. I like you know. It's time. It's time. Right. It's it, 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 it's it's it's. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to see if I could get a one beat. You know, it was just like that. That was that was my thing, and that's how I actually got my opportunity to DJ for the crowd, the the house music crowd. But that I won a I won several battles in order to to get to that point. But once I got there, I realized they didn't want to hear all of that. The guys standing around in the front, they actually were DJ. They actually became DJs later. Like a lot of them come up to me now and say, like, yeah, I was one of those guys that was standing in front while you're doing all those tricks. But the girls aren't dancing, but the guys are like standing there looking like, ooh, 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 what's that he's doing? Like, right. so I realized I had to learn that, wait, well, how come nobody's dancing? Like, no, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I saw some other DJs that had the whole crowd dancing, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna switch it up. I gotta. I got to learn how to DJ for the crowd and, and give them what they want, not feed my ego with all the tricks I practiced all week. You know, so I, I had a transition. The tricks got me in there. But after that, then I started becoming like a real DJ that that can, you know, make people feel emotions for music and, and, and make their day better or whatever. You know, like that's that's what ended up, you know, triggering me to become a producer as well. See, the thing is, I, I'm hearing a lot of that hip hop had a big thing with you, like a lot of influence, that early hip hop. Yeah. Say the disco. Am I right to say that? Yeah, because the early hip hop was actually an offshoot of disco, too. So I was a you disco fan. I mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not like, like I was a disco fan. Like, well, not all of it, of course, because you got break beats, too. But I wasn't necessarily necessarily gravitated to the breakbeats as much as I was the stuff that still had a disco influence and had the, like the nice hard hitting kick and snare. That's why I mentioned um, 
what is it, the uh, Christmas Christmas rapping because that those drums and bass that stuff was like funky, like it it was still disco kind of, and he was rapping on top of it, and the breaks were still kind of <clears throat> kind of a disco feel too. So it was kind of like something that was a little bit more up my alley, you know, like the, uh, the, the, that, but the hip hop influence was like feeding to me wanting to learn how to be a turntablist. But I had to find my way within that, even though, you know, eventually a guy named Tony Batoy threw a battle at a place called um, the Rainbow Roller Rink. Right. And Farley and my Farley, Jack Master Funk and myself, we actually battled uh was it red alert africa islam like we actually had a battle i don't even know they never really judged it as a battle they just had us all just show so, we describe, so describe the situation was it one set of turntables on one side one set of turntables on another or was it one man how did it work out that day? i think we just all took turns playing they just marketed it as a battle but we show what we do and they show what they do so but it made us want to do turntable oh, tricks. If I remember too. right, Farley mentioned Jazzy J was in that from New York. Oh man, yeah, maybe Jazzy J. Jazzy yeah. J came to play. Yeah. Yep. yep. But I remember meeting Red Alert then, and I remember meeting Africa Islam. You as can't well. forget Red because he had red hair. You can't right. forget Red. Now, now he's got all white hair. But back in the day, Red had red hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that you know, so I still always kind of held on to that. When I was on the radio in the Hot Mix 5, I was able to incorporate a little bit of scratching and a few tricks. And when I went to the suburbs, mostly... Hang on, Hang on Steve. So when did you get the job to get in with Hot Mix 5 and how did that happen? That was, I would say, what year was that? 83, 84? Um, you know, Farley and I were roommates, so he pretty much hooked it up, you know. Um, and And I was able to... That was a station I really wanted to be on. I had been on VON, which was an AM station, and GCI, which was not as popular for house music at that time, but it was at least some place where I could play some house music, you know. But I, I that would be 83, 84 um, okay. that, that I got on there. And I was able, that's when I started experimenting also with making my own tracks and playing them on the air. Like I would make a track in the daytime and then play it that night on the air. And I don't even think the program directors knew I was doing that. Um, but it's too late now to turn back. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so I can go ahead and let that out. <laughs> Almost like when you get in trouble with your parents back in the, or when you didn't get in trouble with your parents back in the day. And then you decide you want to have a confession moment. You know, I snuck out the house when I, uh, when you all out of town, you know, I threw a party when you went, <laughs> when what? I was you what? Out. Not like not like you're gonna get in trouble now at this point. So you want to just get that out. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, what was your setup back then? Like you said you're making tracks. Wait. First question I should ask is do you have any formal instrument training? I took piano for three years. Um, but I was just kind of doing stuff by ear. They thought I was learning, but I really was just I would practice it and I would just memorize it pretty much. Okay. So I wasn't really learning the theory of it. I would hear him play it and I would be like, oh, okay. And then when I play it, if I didn't know the notes, when I was going through the notes, I would remember, okay, no, that's not how that note goes. You know what I'm saying? It was a really unorthodox way to play piano. 
And so I never really grasped, you know, all why I had to why I had to practice chords and learn all the keys of each chord, all the notes of each chord of each key, the notes yeah. of each key, you know, in order to um to to properly come up with chords. I didn't learn all of that stuff until later. You know, well, you share that with Bruce Springsteen because I saw Bruce Springsteen tell the same thing, Howard Stern. Say, I watched that interview. He said the same thing. I just did it kind of like by ear. You're doing the same thing. You had some formal yep. training and then you just calculated what you were hearing. And Yeah, but later on in life when YouTube came along, then I started like paying attention to that more and trying to understand, okay, well, they say you have a sound what is my sound? So I started analyzing what my sound was and found out different things that I do that are certain types of chords, you know, like, so then that, that made it kind of interesting. Cause then I could always still, even though I had my own little numbering system that I came up with, I came up with a way that I could come up with chords that I would like based on a number system of whatever the main note of the, of the song was, which was actually the key in a minor more so. Right. The major, I would find a minor key. I knew that I could hear that just hearing the song. I'd be like, oh, do, 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 do. that's the key. And then I would just count up a certain number of steps to find what I wanted to play, what kind of stuff I wanted to play. Different numbers made you feel a certain type of way. So it was like my own little music theory kind of <laughs> formula. And Some mad worked. scientist type stuff. It worked. But yeah. So take us back to 80. 1983 around that time what is your setup at that time and what are you working to make these records what what are you doing my setup is whatever i could borrow in 1983 like <laughs> i borrowed drum machines i didn't even have a, a keyboard yet i just you know from different producers i borrowed borrowed the 808 borrowed a 909 borrowed a msq 700 you know, sequencer, the sequence and stuff. And then later on, I got like a Poly 800, Korg Poly 800. And that's what I ended up doing a lot of my earlier records on. Um, they'd be like, that was the only keyboard I used with different presets. And I would program them and bounce them on four track. So I had all these four track versions that I was playing out at these parties for years before they even came out. So, you know, when the first house music records came out, my stuff was already playing on the radio, but it wasn't published. You know what I'm saying? It was just published as far as people hearing it, but it wasn't it wasn't out as a record. It wasn't available yet for sale. Yeah. Because I was I was that was what I used to to make myself different from everybody else was the four track cassette recordings. And then I would just drop tracks in and out because you got four tracks. I'd have the drums on one, bass on one, the vocals on one, and maybe a sample trigger on the other. And I could like drop stuff in and out like today's equivalent of stems. Pretty much. I was doing that at the parties and the DJs were like, Oh, what's he doing? Like, you know, so it was, it was back to that, but then the people were still dancing. So that was better because now the people are dancing because I'm not disrupting the record. I'm just doing some cool stuff to it, you know, and they don't even know the record, but I'm playing brand new stuff. And then I realized, man, I can, I can actually maybe put some records out. Like I didn't, I didn't really think about it like that yeah, until I went for a while, just going to parties, playing my own music. Did you do like what we all did in New York? Like we all ran into Manny's music or Sam Ash. 
to talk to people that were making, you know, producing the music at the time to find out what gear you needed? Or you just, did someone introduce you to this stuff or you just somehow through osmosis this came through, through to you? Um, you I don't remember who, how did I find, I think I found out about the Poly 800 because it was the cheapest keyboard that I could get. And I listened to a few sounds. I was like, oh, I can work with that. And then I went and got it, you know, but it wasn't like I wasn't in a community of people that were doing music like that. I wasn't from a band or from a, um, you know, like I wasn't a singer. I wasn't like a band member that, and I didn't have people around me that were doing that. So I didn't have anybody to consult, really. All I had was the DJs who were just all DJing, you know. We were talking about turntables and mixers and what kind of speakers we're going to use, whether it's, you know, Serwin Vegas, uh, 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 EVs or whatever the heck, you know, we just double scoops. And like, those were our conversations about right. what the sound was going exactly. to be like. That's what that's. Like, it wasn't. So I didn't have, I didn't have a sounding board or like somebody to tell me like, but some of the other guys, like the fingers Inc. guys, Jesse Saunders, all those guys, they were like band members and, people that actually played instruments and actually were formed. Some of them were formally trained, some weren't, but um, yeah, I just pretty much started from ground zero and used what I had, what I could use to like kind of mostly remake disco songs. And originally I was doing a lot of disco edits and then I started remaking some of those disco songs. Like the, I can't turn around was a remake of the, of the uh, Isaac Hayes vamps that everybody loves so much because everybody had an edit of I can't turn around because Ron, I think Ron Hardy version. That was the one. Yeah. Was yeah. yeah. Ron Hardy might've been the first person I heard playing the edit of that. And it made, made us all like, wow, that part is cold. I don't have that version. Then I made my own version. Then I said, why don't I just replay everything and, and, and do that. And I played that for literally years before I even did music is the key, which was my first record in 85. I, I was already playing. I can't turn around way before that because it was, but I didn't know I could put it out. I knew nothing about the music industry. So I didn't know, Oh, you can just do a cover song and just, just put it out like that as a cover song, make sure that they get their publishing royalties and, and that'd be all she wrote. But I didn't understand that. So that's what took me so long to actually get it out because I just didn't understand. Otherwise that would have come probably before, before music is the key. That or one of my other uh, tracks that I did probably would have. Okay, so so give us the first official record that comes out. Is Music is the Key or Jackie Body? Music is the Key. Okay, so take us down that that road. What was involved with making that? What was the concept behind making that record and getting it to a deal? Well, once I saw that that uh, that people were putting out records, that's what made me, when Jesse Saunders, for instance, put out his record, that made me realize, oh, I can actually put my records out. But I had already been making music in my bedroom at my my parents' house because I moved out once, twice, and then I came back home and my father let me live there in the upstairs for a little while so I could get on my feet and figure out my life. So I, I made all these different versions of music is a key that were instrumental. Then I sang on one. And then uh, when I got ready to record it, um, Farley actually 
recommended me a guy named Keith Nunley. They said was a great singer, been singing in all the bands and everything. And he'd be a great person to sing on the record instead of me. Because <laughs> I wasn't really a singer like that. Sure. Even if I have an average voice, that's that's nothing compared to somebody who can really sing that's been singing all their life. So yeah. when I recorded it, we put his vocals on there and that's what created what became J.M. Silk. Like J.M. Silk was my DJ name, Jackmaster Silk. And then that name got shoplifted, the Jackmaster part of it. And then, <laughs> and then, and then I ended up using J.M. Silk. So you probably heard the, the little underground version of Jackie Byer that goes J.M. Silk, J.M. Silk. I mean, that was my DJ name. So originally it was just my record, but then when the record took off and, you know, people were like, uh, who was it? The guy from uh, Bruce Forrest and all these people, Better Days and Tony Humphreys, they all, all their club, they started wanting to book us to perform. So it became like really a group at that point. So that's that's how Jam Silk was born. Like we, I didn't have an intention of being a group. I just was putting a record out that I was playing for people that they were reacting to. I didn't know anything about the music business. So well, that ended up being kind of cool. How long were you playing that record out before it got to the point of you signing a DJ International? Well, actually, the DJ International thing, a lot of people don't know. I borrowed money from my dad to put that record out with Rocky Jones. So I wasn't really signed to DJ International. It was just we made an agreement that we would put it out. So and then that that ended up being the first record that I put out and the and the um Shadows of Your Love and Jack Your Body and all that. But I wasn't really signed to them. It was just like something we decided to do. Cause it wasn't really like the real music industry for us. It was just get a record out. You know what I mean? So I'd never really had official agreements and all that stuff with that. So it it became a situation. Then the situation came up where I was able to uh, uh, get on a major label, which was what everybody was talking about. You got to get on a major label. Got to right. get on a major yes, label. Yes. Yeah. Wendy Goldstein, who was at RCA Records, I guess she heard our heard the noise that we were making with our music and the fact that we were going to different cities and touring and everything, and they wanted to sign us. So they picked up our album, and right after they picked up our album, then she left RCA, which sucked because she was the dance person. So then we didn't have anybody like fighting for house music. So then we were, we're talking to the R&B department, the pop department. So that album ended up being kind of all over the place. When really, in hindsight, I kind of wish we would have had it a little bit more raw and a little bit more focused on what we originally started doing. But the good thing about it is I, I learned from the experience how to produce records because I, I loved R&B too. So I learned a lot of production techniques and things by doing that album. Right. But in hindsight, of course, you always can see 2020 and you can you can. Uh, yeah, but you, you, you know, you, you, you're talking from, let's just say, almost a half a century of experience now. Right. You're learning on the job. Like, you're like, it's like you're digging the sand and the sand's coming. Yeah, you that definitely was learned, especially for me, because I wasn't a real, I wasn't a real singer like Keith. Like, he was from the whole singing thing. 
You know, I'm saying like that's a whole different culture of bands winning winning contests, you know, talent shows. Yeah. Talent shows, I'm winning DJ battles. So it's two totally different, totally different worlds coming together, which ended up becoming the formula for house music is the DJs and the and the artists coming together. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times the artists don't get their just due because because back then though the 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 DJs didn't get their just due. But now now the artists don't necessarily get their just due unless, you know, unless somebody's really promoting them. You know, like it's it's it's, it's kind of tough out there for everybody, actually, you know, with world now. that kind of thing. With because the because of the changes in the industry, you know, the, the labels used to promote you and put the money behind you and behind your record. But now you have to do that on your own. Like today, you have to be the machine. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not like back in the day where you just sit back and wait for them to develop you as an artist and all that. Like, so that's why Skip and I are excited about what we're able to do with SNS Records, where we can work with all the new artists from all over the world and help develop them through our label and and help them get to the next level, what they're trying to do, because um, it's a whole different industry. You know, but it's also an industry where you have to promote yourself as well. You can't just sit back and wait for things to happen just because you're on a label doesn't mean that you just sit back and like, ah, I want to see where I'm at on the charts today. Right. Yeah. Like you used to do yeah. that. But yeah, when you put these records out, Steve, were you thinking about being the big DJ artist or were you just putting the record out just to get a record out? I just was creatively expressing myself. And when I saw that I could, when from the first time I played something that I put together and I saw people react, I was like, I love this. I want to do this forever. Like I want to make music and move people. And then as I learned how to produce R&B music and write songs, and even though my first song was a song, when I started learning how to write like really serious songs, like, that had a storyline and all of that stuff. It just, I wanted to, I wanted to move people with lyrics. I wanted to move people with the way the vocals sound. I want to move people with better chords. Like I just wanted to get more and more sophisticated with it. So that's what kind of helped me to help me to go to the next, next level is that I always wanted to learn more, no matter what success I may have on different projects. I didn't want to just take that for granted and say, Oh, um, I've arrived and just try to ride it out. I was always trying to see, okay, what's the next trend that's coming? What's the new sounds that are out? And yeah, I did go to the Guitar Center and Sam Ash and all those places. And I was trying to see what the new gear was and, you know, keeping my wife waiting outside and uh, for me to get a come out of the Guitar Center. She'd be mad, boy. Like, <laughs> like are, are you almost done? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'd be in there tinkering around. Yeah, in another minute. I'd be there in a minute. Yeah, it's just, <clears throat> but those are the good old days. So, uh, so then here's the thing: what's the first breakout record that makes Steve So Curly get known everywhere? Um, like boom. Well, music. My first record, from a Chicago standpoint, because we had the Hot Mix Five and everything on the weekend, that show was more popular than the regular radio shows. So. It's like I was in rotation because everybody was playing my record. Uh, all the record pools were playing at the um, 
the DJ International was associated with the record pool. So all their DJs were playing. It was like a nice groundswell of people playing the record at home. And then it was spreading out from Chicago to all the different suburbs, to the west side, south side, north suburbs, south suburbs. Like it was, it was everywhere. So we started DJing in all these different places. And and there was also our music being played when we DJed. It wasn't just us playing other people's music. We were playing our music too. And then that turned into concerts. And you know, when we had the jam silk thing and we rehearsed for our shows and everything, and we became start to have really good shows. People like Tony Humphreys were like booking up. They booked us probably about eight, eight times at the Zanzibar. Oh yeah. I know. I remember coming to New York a lot to come in paradise garage, Copa studio 54. I see you had in the, in your, in your um, room there. We, I mean, like we, we did all of those clubs, all the old school clubs and whatever was the new school clubs. Then uh, even at the Latin clubs we did, uh, what was that? Latin quarter. Yeah. Like, you name it, like we, we we made our rounds. So when I got to that point of doing doing my my music, it was like kind of a seamless. It's kind of a seamless thing to be able to go from being a DJ to all of a sudden performing. That was kind of painful though because that wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I knew I needed to do it because I needed to support the record that I put out. So I had to learn how to be a performer. You know, even though that's not what what I was. So so by doing that, um, then the records was being supported also by all the DJs in New York, especially uh, Philly, D.C., Baltimore, like the whole East Coast was really embracing house music. And that really helped us. And then U.K. was paying attention to it. And then next thing you know, by the time um, Jack Your Body came out. the UK already knew about house music. So that's why Jack Your Body was able to go number one on the pop charts out there for two weeks, which had never happened before. And that was unbelievable. So that was maybe the biggest. But it's always the first guy that starts it. You're the one that gets that door to crack open. First house record goes number one, top of the pops. That's a big deal. That's a humongous deal. Hey, I appreciate it. Most people, most people, like if I ask somebody who I know from Chicago, you know anything about Top of the Pops? They don't even know. Like, so Jack Your Body to them was just, hey, that's hey, that's my jam. That's the one they play at the parties. Yeah. But they were, but they didn't know anything about it being like a pop hit. And unless they saw the news clip where they talked about it on the news that one time, but it wasn't like an ongoing thing where they're always talking about house music every day. This was just like it's a phenomenon. Because that's news that something from Chicago went number one in the UK. It's like a reversal of the Beatles type of thing where the Beatles became number one over here. You know, it's like a kind of a flip flop of it, of it all. So that was news for them, but they never really like kept supporting it like that. It just was news to put out there, you know. So in the UK side, who called you over? What was the story behind that as far as the record getting licensed over there and making it to become a pop hit? What was that all about for you? Because again, that would take me a few hours to because I didn't even know about it. Um, I didn't even know. Oh, wait, did I lose? Internal temperature too high. Allow it to cool. Wait, everybody can. We wait. hear you, but we lost your camera. 
I'm trying to figure out is my camera still on? So we're back. Well, I think it's something the camera's getting too hot and it died. And just about ready to get to the UK part, everybody. Oh wow. We may have to no, it's not even hot. Wow. We may have to switch to your camera oh, that you don't like. Let's try it again. Coming back. Where are we? My bad. It's settings. It's coming back. Green. There we are. I'm okay. back. I am back. He's back. I have no idea why they did that. Mr. Hurley. Senior Sometimes Hurley. technology is just too much. It's the room's getting heated now. So <laughs> yeah, things are getting heated in here. Yeah, yeah that actually condense it down. Surprise! I didn't even know the record was out in the UK. That explains to you right there. Yeah, not only not only did Chicago not know that the record was number one, I didn't know because I didn't even know the record was out in the UK because that was done without my knowledge. So that became a whole thing. And, you know, I don't I don't want to get into that because that's like a bunch of legalities and everything. But bottom line is it was something I wasn't aware of. And we were working on our album at the time. So I didn't even go on top of the pops. My management said, no, you need to stay here and finish the album so I can make more money off of you. That's another story. Okay, but... <laughs> is, that Frank, is that Frank Rodrigo yet? Is he now managing you yet, or is that before... What'd you say? Is that Frank Rodrigo era, or is that... That's the Frank Rodrigo era, yep. Oh, okay, because I remember Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good and a lot of bad. Like, yes. I mean... Just, I mean I don't. I wouldn't take that experience away for anything because I learned so much about life that I've been able to pass down to my kids. You know, by going through different things, you know that you can pass it to the next generation. Like, so if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. You know, as as you know, your elders probably right, say. So then, so then, let's look at it like this. Like you said, you don't want to get to legal side of it, but then explain the bad that turn into good. Well, the 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 bad. The bad was that I didn't know what was going on in a lot of cases, but the good is that I was learning how to become a producer. I was learning how to write with other people. We had ID records, which was um, which was Jamie Principal came on board around the same time as me, and then I became a partner in it. We brought on Eastmoo, Maurice, my brother-in-law, M-Doc. All those people became writing partners for me. Jerry McAllister, uh, so many others that were like, Great writers, Kim Sims. We all just we collaborated. So that was the good that came out of it. But we didn't know about the bad until later, till we saw that things weren't really right. So we had a lawsuit and all that stuff. We all had our individual lawsuits with with that, and that's all said and done. And now everything is all good. I, you know, um, but that catalog and ID Records is is, is my label. Uh, on yes, my I wanted, own to right ask, now. wanted to ask you about the ID situation and not the negative part of it, because this is what we do remember. It was like a factory, you guys. It was a time when you guys were getting all the remixes. Chicago was controlling a lot of that power and the dance side of it, which was a great, you know, it was a really good thing because why not go to the guys that help make this music commercial, right? But we remember hearing the stories on the New York side, how it was like an assembly line in there. You had people writing. Can you kind of explain how the ID records thing worked back then? The whole management thing? Well, originally when it was just Jamie and I, we were work we were working on Jamie's music and my music. 
Okay. And then I decided, Jamie, we were working on an album for EMI, I think, at one point for Jamie, and it was going to come out. And that somehow fizzled out, I think, because of the the, the fact that, it, that uh, we weren't on the same page creatively. But we still released a lot of Jamie stuff originally, but the label was called Equitron, I believe. Um, and then um, DJ World. Um, wait, what was it called before that? Equitron and I just know Equitron. So when Jam- when that stuff came out, then the next step was we we changed it to ID. But before that happened, I worked on a an album for Atlantic, where I took all of the artists that were part of our camp and I did like a compilation album, like a Quincy Jones kind of thing, where I was the producer and they were the artists, and we did like a song on each person, Jamie, Samson, Moore, um, uh, Jackson and Moore was the name of the group. Reesey, who did House Train and another one. And um, who else was on there? And Jamie, of course. So Cold World and a lot of these other uh, songs. So we did that. And then I think right after that was when we changed it to ID because we wanted to do a fresh new thing. ID standing for its dance. And Echotron to us wasn't really marketable like that. It was, I don't even know where the name came from, but with the ID, that's when I started becoming like a partner and bringing in more people, East Smooth, Maurice. Um, Cause I saw that they had the same work ethic I had. They're all, you know, East Smooth was from the Southeast side in Chicago, just like me. And we were in the same circle. He was just younger. And then Maurice was in the South suburbs. He had booked me to DJ parties out in his area. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of we had a lot in common with each other. And um, wait, I'm just trying to make sure the camera's right. Okay, there yeah, we you're go. Fine. You look good. Everybody applaud him. He's here, yeah. Mr. Hurley. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I saw something was turned off. So I had to no, make sure it was back on the right way. <laughs> yeah, but um, the ID. What did you ask me about ID? How did that work? Yeah, so, the assembly line. The whole you know, like, yeah. Motown, so you know how like Motown had an assembly line. What was yeah. The whole yeah, time. originally we were just developing East Move and Maurice, and then after I did uh, Roberta Flack, and I had been doing um, what's the name of that? Uh, I'm trying to think of some of that. What Kim is It was '88. I'm trying to think of that song from '88. Nicole, like right around Nicole. I don't know if you remember that record. Nicole, mm-hmm. and then all the Ten City stuff. I was doing uh-huh. that, and the and the um, Inner City right. doing the remixes for that. So I did all that stuff, and then the transition came like kind of right after, right after that album came out in eighty nine, ninety on Atlantic. And that's when I started incorporating other people into my mixes because now I was getting booked to do a lot of remixes work, and we wanted to try to get those guys in the mix because they had the same kind of mentality I had and they had the talent to do it. So we wanted to find a way to promote them as part of my thing in order to get them a springboard for them to go have their career. So um, I started, one of the first mixes was probably, uh, I remember remember the time was early on for Michael Jackson and, you know, they booked me, but of course I put, East Move and Maurice on it, and it created like a really great package because then I could do my signature sound, and East Move could be more deep and late night, and Maurice could be more underground and raw, 
So we had kind of a, a triple threat and I didn't have to compromise what I did to try to be more underground or more deep. I could just kind of be whoever I wanted to be and they could be whoever they wanted to be. So right. we just pretty much the process though was we would take the vocals because we were using S1000s at the time and 3200s. We would take the vocals and throw them in the sampler. We had digital performer running the sampler and one of us would sample the vocals. Eventually they became the people sampling the vocals so that it would make it faster for me if they sampled the vocals and then I had the vocals in my sampler, they had them in theirs. And we had like all three people had the samplers with the vocals in them. And we all just did our own interpretation of the song with the sample, with the vocal samples. Because at that point, we had started doing a whole new compositions for remixes as opposed to just the old days where you just add a couple of percussion instruments to something. And then that's, that's, that becomes a remix. Um, we started, I think Roberta Flack was one of the first ones where I kind of like took just the vocals and made a whole new track. And that was maybe like 87, 88. Did they, did, they, did Atlantic go crazy when you sent back over the, the track with this? They track? didn't get it. They put it on the B side. And then when, the, when it went to the DJs, they started playing the B side. So it was like, then Roberta Flack actually called me. I couldn't believe it. Like that was somebody, my father. When I told him that she called me, he couldn't believe it because he was a huge fan of her. He used to play her music all the time. So softly, right? And all he was like, that. you did something for Roberta Flack? What? He, he didn't really understand it. He was like trying to grasp it. But um, what'd she tell yeah. you, Steve? What'd she tell you, what'd she tell you at the mix? What'd she say? She said, hello. And I was like, this is Roberta. <laughs> I love what you did to my record. And I was like, I didn't even know what to say. Like, I was like, hey, I've been a fan of yours for years, that type of thing. It was right. that kind of conversation. Like, we just, yeah, it's been, it was an honor to do it. Like, yeah, I would love to, you know, do more. So, like, it was just, it was just surreal for me. But, but from that point on, I think I started using that formula of, of just taking the vocals and see what I come up with. Like, as opposed to, using too much of the original song because you know like for something like good life for inner city i just changed the drums added an extra bass line maybe turn their bass line down a little bit bring mine up just kind of like more like a rework almost the way reworks are now yep. it was more like that so and just maybe a different type of energy because they had you know, it was still a house energy but my energy was a little different than theirs it was like a different more drum oriented energy and theirs might've been more musical. So it was, but then that became the opposite of what I did. I started being more musical. So it was kind of, kind of crazy how things just panned out. And um, at the same time that I was doing all of these different remixes, I was working on the Kim Sims album as well. Cause she got signed to Atlantic cause Atlantic was like a label that really liked my sound. And uh oh, did I lose you? Who again? I was going to ask you. Who was the A and R guy that you were dealing with at Atlantic at that time? I think it was Joey Carvello at one oh, point. Oh, Joey. Okay. Yeah, Joey, and then no, Joey was no wait. Joey and Joey and Ken Commissar were my first album. I'm sorry, I'm getting it mixed up. Then we ended up for that album. We were dealing with Atco East West, which was Sylvia Rome, Merlin Bob. Merlin Bob. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, with that album, Kim was like a singer that 
was doing a bunch of jingles. She had done a bunch. I don't know if you remember that soda called Shasta. She sang all those Shasta commercials back in the day. Yep. But I always thought she could sing. So I was like, man, you should do a record with me. And then I brought her in and she and she started singing demos. And then next thing you know, later on, she started writing with with me. Right. And we said, hey, let's try to get you an album deal and we'll record. We'll just write songs and we'll just demo them on you. And and the ones that work for you, for you getting an album, cool. The ones that don't, we'll just place them and then you can be part of the writing. And and, you know, if it gets placed somewhere, then you'll make some money on the writing. So that's what happened. We're like, keep on walking. She originally sang that, but then it was more suited for Cece than it was her because her voice it was a more sassy type of song that needed like a certain type of delivery, like a like a more a more what's the word more energetic. Kim was more like smooth with her singing, but right. but Cece was like 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 almost gospel with her approach. They had to almost tone it tone that part down. And it's still super strong. Like she was able to hit certain types of notes and 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 uh, make things sound like you could believe it if she was mad at somebody about whatever they've done to you. You know what I'm saying? Like we want the songs to be believable, like the way they approach you. So I learned I was learning a lot about vocal production at that point because I was working on CC stuff. I was working on Kim stuff. Then we had the remixes going. So it was like a lot of moving parts to it and a lot. Not much sleep, but I don't regret it because I was hey, I was in the zone. Like I was just enjoying learning how to how to produce records, not only remix records, but produce records, write records, and develop artists, which I still do even now. So it's like like some like I always wanted to be, I don't want to say I always wanted to be, but I didn't know I was going to be become an executive and as a writer and a producer and a remixer on top of being a DJ, but it all kind of goes together. Cause if you look at some of those people that were instrumental in signing the records, like your Merlin Bobs and, um, you know, even I think Wendy Goldstein might've been a DJ. Uh, I find out every day that different people are DJs. Craig Common, who I did the Jermonda record for, he was a DJ. I didn't know he was a DJ to the extent that he was a DJ. I mean, I just talked to him literally the other day. And he said he used to DJ at the tunnel and all these different places. I'm like, wow. And Merlin Bob was on WBLS on as well and played shelter and stuff. So he was on, he was a master mixer for many years. Yeah. So you just never know. Like when somebody becomes an executive, you just look at them as an executive. You know what I'm saying? Right. Now you're looking at him as a, well, also you're coming from Chicago. So you're not thinking about New York radio. You're not thinking about the club scene in that way. And we lost your camera. Uh, I'm going to go to the other. Internal temperature too high. As he gets, as he tells us the story, everyone, the camera is too hot. Can't handle it. <laughs> it's a good I've never camera. had that. I've never had that problem before. Oh, you know what? That's this room. This room gets hotter than others. Oh, there we go. Okay, there's my. All right, so we get another. This are right, we still looking. There's right. my other one. There's my other one. I let so, this other one cool down a little bit. So, yeah, when you so you walk in in these record labels. Was there actual a true record business in Chicago like New York had? You know, people who never came to Chicago. Was there a real, I mean, we know there's tracks records. We know there was DJ International. But was there a official, like, you know, here in New York City, 
You had Atlantic, Warner Brothers, all these companies, all the independents were in New York. Did Chicago have that? Or you had to focus on getting a deal in New York? Are you talking you're talking about during the time when we got the yeah, we had to count we had to get the deal from New York or LA. Like there was no I can't even think of a label that was in Chicago, even independent, that would even understand what we were doing. Right. Like, like most of the art, most of the labels in Chicago were like blues, R and B, jazz labels. You know, you got your um Ramsey Lewis, you got your people from the blues, uh blues, what's the name of that? remember the name of Bruce a guy named Bruce Igalor. I remember he had a blues label, one of the biggest blues labels there. I can't remember the name of the label for some reason, but yeah, we didn't have like a, a pop or R&B or dance, dance label. The closest we could come to somebody understanding house music was you guys in New York because you all had the culture of dance music for years with disco and club music that house music just kind of fit right into. So it, it, be, it became, it became like a perfect fit for people who are already playing our music to be the people signing the music. So it didn't, it didn't really make sense to do anything other than that. You know, even more so than LA, New York, I would say was probably wiser to, because at least you will be understood in your music. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Except in our case, when our late, when, when Wendy left us, Left us standing, standing. You left us standing. <laughs> Sorry, Wendy. <laughs> yeah, but but that you know, what, what was the question you were asking me before my camera? No, you, got, you got it right. No, no, you got it right. The, the whole machinery of ID and how New York was the place to make this become a reality. These, this music and getting yes. the deals. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean. That was that was definitely even with my remixes. Most of my remixes came out of New York, especially early on. Eventually, of course, as the music got more popular in UK, I started getting a lot of remixes from there, and we started getting records signed in different territories and things like that. But we never really, um, we never really had a Chicago hub for music like that. You know, like the D- DJ International and tracks they were putting records out, but there wasn't like a developmental label, like where you could develop an artist. Do you know why I asked that question? Because when Linda Clifford was talking to me about this, she got signed to Curtom, which was in Chicago. That's Curtis Mayfield's label. Right. Right. So you could say that there was record labels, but not at the time when you guys. Not when the house music took off at that point. I don't even know what's Kurtan. If they were doing something on Kurtan, it probably was more super uh, conservative R&B kind of stuff. At that time. And they, a lot of those guys were looking at what we were doing like, that's not no real music, boy. What's that you're doing? (laughs) Where's your guitar? Exactly. (laughs) What the hell is you rigging me with the drum machine? Right. Right. Yeah, you're using a drum machine? You're using a synthesizer? No, we don't do that, bro. No, Where's the drummer? Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, it's tough, especially when you know you got records that is kicking off in the scene and everyone's jacking and loving what you're doing. But yet you go to the old folk, the ones that are pre to us, they're looking at us like, get out of here with that. Come on. Right. What are you out of your mind? I try to explain that to people, you know, 
that 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 group of producers and and artists and musicians they're all unreal the the their quality of perfection the music okay ID's going really well, and Steve, you're getting paid buku buku money to remixes at that time. You were doing very well. I remember you were like one of the best paid in the game. Because uh. <laughs> your mixes were the mix. You were the guy to go to. You were the guy to go to it. There was a time. And everybody gets that moment in life. Um, when does ID end for you? Like, that you say, all right, you know what? We got to stop this. Like, this, this is just not working no more. Um, that was like 93, right around 90, uh, April of 93, actually. Um, that's when we started, uh, having issues. I think Maurice left first and he smooth. And I, I felt like, man, if they're leaving, I need to really look into this and make sure that what they're saying is not true. Like they, they feel like things are not fair or whatever. So I just decided to, look into it and I didn't really like what I saw. So that was like 93 to 95. I went through a serious lawsuit with the management and it was tough for me because I was a DJ. I mean, I was a producer and remixer that couldn't produce, write and remix because I was tied to contracts where I could be stopped and I didn't have the documentation that I was just as much in control of that as my manager was. So I had to get out from under contracts. He was blocking me from doing projects, but somehow I figured out how to still continue to do music. It got a little bit delayed, but for a few months, and then I was able to get back to doing music while I was going through the lawsuit, which was, whew, if you've ever been in a lawsuit, man, it's it's not a fun thing, you know. It is. I had to I had to find all my documentation and build my own case because even if you're paying people hundreds of dollars an hour, you they still have to know you know all the details of everything that ever happened between the two of you so they can protect you against them saying one thing happened and another thing and you saying another thing happened if you didn't tell them what happened you know, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. So they need to have all the information so they could help me get my situation straight. So that was like, whew, if I could, I learned so much from that. That was like the true, if it don't, if it don't kill you, it makes you stronger. That was, that was it right there. Like I heard my mother and grandmother's voice in the background telling me that every time, you know, it's just like, wow, how do you, how, how do you how do you like continue to to do music and and be inspired while going through like some ugly stuff on the other side? Like it's it's not easy, you know. Um, but I'm trying to think. I think once I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and I saw it was about to get settled, then I st- things started getting better. But remember, at the same time, I had I had opened up my own studio downtown, so I was paying every month to be in this building that was really nice 4,000 square feet and we had reproduction we pretty much recreated ID records downtown and I was doing that while I was in the lawsuit <clears throat> and working with Shantae Savage and M. Doc and uh, Jamie was down there and we were 
we were uh promote we were helping some uh younger guys steve maestro uh was part of our camp um who else kelly g yeah so we were like developing a new set of people and and kind of like just reinventing the wheel you know but that was tough once that once but once that lawsuit was over i felt vindicated because i felt like i got what i deserved and i was able to start all over and and then I started the next wave, which was the Silk Entertainment label, um, where I had the Word is Love. And, uh, Sharon Pass, and, yeah. Uh, you know, Sharon, yeah, Sharon Pass. Um, and and uh, what else did I have? Uh, it's just so much. I did some Ann Nesby stuff, like some uh, Vanessa Mitchell with Ricky Dillard, collaborated with them. Like, it's just like, I got more soulful. At that point, uh, here we go. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I promise. So, while we get you back, I'm back. What's the fallout for someone like this? I need, I need to be in. Yeah, the air isn't as strong in this room. <laughs> What's the fallout after something like that? That you built an empire for someone like yourself to actually recondition and go forward. How do you, you know? Because a lot of people don't get that. You know, you built an empire when it wasn't something that was normal. So you didn't have a rule book to go by. You kind of write in the rules as you go. And then you kind of have to get out of it. Yeah. So the shady, crappy things that go on that you didn't go- know about. So how do you deal with the fallout? And still smile and still keep everything going and keep everybody paid. And Yeah, that, that was w- real stressful. My checklist was like super long. I write, I'd write out all kind of stuff. Then I got a Palm Pilot, so I was putting it in the Palm Pilot. <laughs> oh, I remember that. I do remember you had one. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Yeah. My checklist in the Palm Pilot was crazy. <laughs> I just went back to paper. I was like, nah, I'm, I'm just going to stick with the paper. It's right here. I'll still keep that paper right here. But that checklist was, was ridiculous of things that I had to do because I was trying to help other people go to the next level, too. I wasn't just... You know, trying to keep my career afloat. I was trying to still continue to develop the way I learned how to do it when we had ID. I wanted to keep that going. But eventually, you know, the industry kind of changed and went in a different direction with the change of mediums to CD and eventually download and all that, where the production side had to be less expensive because the budgets became less for dance music, especially um, unless you just had a hit. If you had an outright hit, cool. But at that point, I was more about developing my own thing. So that didn't make sense either to go in that to go in that direction to try to keep getting records signed. I just started doing my own thing, learning how to how to license my music overseas and get songs placed and different things like that. And that's the first thing I'm hearing that you got. You took back the business part of it, where you weren't doing the business. You're letting him, you're letting the manager do the business. You're doing the fun part, which is make the music. And now you're not only making the music, but you're also watching everything now. Yeah. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. So doing that. And then I was on the radio with Tom Joyner for like 23 years doing mashups. Like that was, that that was from, I would say 94 to 2016. Something like that. Well, I was still doing that. At the same time, I was running the label and all that stuff. And then I then I ran into Skip, uh, Shannon Skip Sias, who's the other S and S and S. 
in 2004, we started playing basketball together and running into each other, going in and out of France. The next thing you know, we said, hey, why don't we do something for Chicago? And we did this thing called the Chicago LP, where we paid tribute to all the people from Chicago that we could catch up with to tell their stories of how they ended up getting into the music business. And they uh, put a record on the project. We had 33 new records that we put out and uh, 33 artists interviews, more than that, maybe maybe 50 interviews. Right. You know, all kinds of people from our from our Chicago scene that were there for the early days of house music. Um, so it just it just became a new chapter of the same thing. We both are like minded. We both like working with the next generation of people. So that's that's what we, what's what the common thread is, is that that we all were that no matter what chapter I've been in my life, I've always tried to help other people achieve their dreams, whether it was the singers I was working with, trying to help them get their career going. I didn't mind being the guy in the, you know, taking a back seat. I don't have to have, I don't have to have my face showing and all that stuff. That's not a big deal. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to develop CC. I wanted to develop um, Jam Silk, which was really, which was really Keith because he's the one who's a singer. I'm just, I'm more so background guy producing the music. I'm straight. I'm, I'm just going to get work and do what I do, but I want you to shine, you know? So even when he did his solo album, I still, you know, did some stuff on him for his solo album. Then you got Kim Sims. Then you got Shantae Savage. Like these are artists that I was trying to push to do their own thing. And then the producers like the East moves and the Maurice's and, and Jamie, Jamie is like a great producer. Like people don't even know he did all those records back in the day. Like he's talented brother. He's a genius, man. Like, yeah. 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 But, but just to be able, that's always been my focus is like, man, how can I make this person shine? So that's, that's what Skip and I have in common. We love working with these new artists that maybe people don't know who they are, but they're doing great music. So we're, you know, we're, we're putting out, you know, 30, 40, records a year on different artists in different territories. And we're, we're trying to trying to help them get to the next level with what they're doing. And, you know, it's, we have a lot of really good music and, you know, hopefully we can create the opportunities for them through our resources with the, you know, with the companies that do movies and things like that. Sometimes it's not just because today it's not really sales it's streams. So we all know what that is. That's not like what it used to be when you could sell a double pack of vinyl and, and sell 20,000 of them and, and make a $3, 3 and $4 profit on each one. Right. And you do the math and you're close to 100,000 on a record. Like those days are over. Like now, even, even, the, even digitally, if you take the 99 cents or the 129 or whatever, even if somebody did decide to download something, which they don't do, <laughs> other than the DJs that still support the music and buy track source and Beatport and Juno and all those. But that's kind of minuscule compared to compared to how many people are streaming. Like when you wake up and you open up your phone, you're like putting on your playlist and that's the music that you're playing. You're not people aren't really as concerned with owning that music. Remember those first records that you bought? Like for me, it was Parliament Funkadelic. When I had my Parliament album, man, I, I was I was hugging onto that thing for dear life. Like and then when it came out on CD or eight track and I felt like it was going to be a cleaner, cleaner in my, um, to play it. Like it was going to, the quality was going to be better. 
I got the CD version or I got the eight track version at some point when I was using eight tracks. That was a short lived time, but I always wanted to have that best quality. So um, you still have people that care about that, but your masses are doing streams. So now we're trying to maximize, you know, how somebody in today's landscape can can maximize their career in more than one way, not just music. But how do you how do you push your brand and and get people to let people get to know you so that you can get more strings, you can get more shows, you can you can write songs that may possibly get placed somewhere in the TV me, TV and film medium. Like like we're we're more so pushing in a lot of different directions. Like we even have a podcast that we've started filming. Skip and I, uh, the SNS podcast, Hustle Inspires Hustle. And it's uh, the episodes are going to be starting to run in the next few weeks. So, like, nobody ever got to know me as a person because I'm always the guy behind the scenes. Like, well, it's always doing that. And that was by choice. You know, I wanted I wanted the artist to shine, which I still do. But people still need to see me and see what I'm about as a person, not just not just uh, know me by my music. Because a lot of times people are dancing to my music and have no idea that I did it, especially now. Because think about how the credits were back in the day when you went record shopping, which is the only way you could get music. It said produced by or, you know, written by and people will read those labels. But now when you're going to Spotify, it's the artist name. So if you're not in the artist line, nobody knows you did it. So I've done hundreds of records, but on my Spotify, it only shows the ones that that were under my name, which I never pushed my stuff to be under my name. I, like I said, I was developing artists. I was, it wasn't Steve Silk Hurley featuring, featuring uh, Shantae Savage or CC Peniston. It was CC right. Peniston. Like, you know, so, you know, when all that whole thing changed, then it became a thing where the producers needed to start getting some kind of um, recognition for what they're doing. So a lot of labels started putting us on the artist line and so that we could at least at least people who follow us and follow our music. Like if I, if I love, love what Lenny Fontana does, can I go on to Spotify and just make a, 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 and find all this stuff and have a, have a Lenny Fontana, um, a playlist, you know what I'm saying? Like half the stuff that you did probably isn't under your name. You know what I'm saying? So because back in the day, when we signed those inducement letters, we signed them under different artists and they didn't own our name. Yeah. We didn't do it like that, like now. Now everything's based on your name now. Yeah, so you have to, you have to, you have to change with the times. And and I'm sure you found a way to change with the times as well. Like you just, you want to stay relevant. You have to change with the times and embrace the technology. Don't be bitter about it. Like man, they ain't giving me no credit. Like, (laughs) I mean, you can always do something about it as opposed to complain about it, right? You know, well, I mean, you can always every record you put out now, you make sure you're on the artist line, then cool. Steve, like, you can always complain. I always say this, who the hell's listening? Yeah. You know, it's the truth. Who you, you complain to your heart's desire, but you got to do something about it. If you don't make the change, if you don't embrace the technology, you're out. Yeah. You know? I just want to know how, how how much is how much is five minutes on the board right there? How much how much how much for five minutes? You remember the one rib? How much for one rib? How much for five minutes on the Five dollars. <laughs> One rib, five, no, one rib, one rib, five. Just <laughs> give me five minutes on the SSA. I just want to dump something through the like, anytime, anytime you want. You've got you've got carte blanche anytime. 
Yeah, I'm messing, um, I'm messing with you, but hey, we definitely gotta gotta link up and do some stuff. Oh, we definitely will. Um, yeah, I've been helping a lot of the fellas out in Chicago. They call me to if they need somebody to track the vocal for somebody or I help out anywhere I can. I always. Yep. That's so, cool. so did you ever take a break? I know you're doing Tom Joyner, but did you ever take a break where you said, you know what, I'm so disgusted with this game? You said, you know, I'm gonna take a minute out. I mean, a minute becomes more like a year or two, or it probably seemed like that when I wasn't when I when when like maybe 2003, 2004, when the vinyl started fading out. And that's when when Skip and I hooked up and we started doing, we decided to do that CD and DVD thing. Mm-hmm. But by the time it came out, CDs started fading out. Yeah. Started, so that was so crazy because we spent all that time putting that together. And and then and then that faded out. Right. But I would say between that time when I started doing that, I stopped doing as much production. So it might seem to people that I just kind of left it behind for a minute because I wasn't doing records every week like I was before, all of a sudden I'm just doing a few records a year because I'm on the executive side and, you know, maintaining our, our publishing catalog and, and the um, and the record label catalog and trying to, like I said, help some other people get through the door. And, and eventually some of these talented people will be recognized and, and eventually we'll have like some superstars on our label, you know what I'm saying? Like, because sure. I believe in that. I believe that you can you can still develop people, even though the landscape has changed. I mean, people like what they like, and if they decide they want to put you in their playlist on Spotify, then it might catch on. Like a lot of the artists that I really like, I remember when the, nobody liked them, but then just people in our family were like, "Hey, have you heard the Summer Walker girl? Hey, have you heard this? You know, like all these different people that that." That blew up LMA and I remember when they were nobody knew who they were. Like, so it is possible to still start from nothing and and go to go to the next level. Although those artists did end up on labels and everything, but I still yeah, think independently, yeah. a lot of these artists are building their own thing and then they're getting picked up. So you can at least build your own thing and make a decision whether you want to stay independent or go to an another independent label. Or, or if you want to go to a major, but if you don't make start the fire yourselves, it's just going to fizzle out before it even gets going. Because you, if you're sitting up waiting on somebody to make it happen for you, it's not going to happen. Man. That's the thing. You can't wait on anybody these days. You got to be very proactive in today's game. Very proactive. And you said that earlier in the broadcast that. You got to be your own advocate. You got to be fighting for your stuff. It's great if you have a great marketing team and you have the money and all that. But if you don't, you got to be out there pushing everything you got to get this right. Yeah, that's true. You know, because like you said, I sit back and waiting for the answer from the record label. That's over. Oh, yeah. God, that doesn't exist now. Yeah. You know? How much energy are you putting into label now? Because we know we have SNS Chicago. Are you still have that same passion you had? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, I, I wish, I wish I could, uh, get more hours out of the day so I could do all the things that I personally want to do in the studio and do that and the podcast and the social media that needs to be done. So people can know that you have a, a pulse, like you actually are breathing. 
Like if you don't get out there and and uh, get on TikTok and get on Reels and and share your st- share stuff to your story, then people just think you're just chilling. Like not necessarily that you fell off, but more so like, oh, he's just chilling. He ain't got to do nothing. Like milk is chilling, and <laughs> yeah, milk is chilling. What can I say? Yeah, milk exactly. And that's sometimes you feel like that. Well, if he's not maneuvering that that uh, social media. He must not be doing anything. But yeah. that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited, though, about what's happening with the label, though, because we've been promoting our brand so much that now we're starting to get super duper talented people that would normally uh, a, a major label would fight for that aren't getting a chance. And they're coming to us now and saying, man, can you put our record out? And I'm like, listen to this stuff. I'm like, wow. Like it's super clean. Like the technology has allowed people to do better records than ever. So the bar has kind of been raised. And now we're getting even more records that have that potential to be hits. Like not just underground hits, you know, like we like we we want to be authentic and and put out underground records and 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 do the un- and um and and serve the underground community because that's where we came from. But we also want to have a few that slip through the cracks and and, and go through the next to the next level. Like sometimes it might just be a great song, and then you just do the right remix on it. And it was, you know, the original was kind of like not even house, but it's like kind of like Skip just brought in this record the other day, and I, oh wow, that is crazy, and I, I couldn't believe the quality of it. And it's a band and everything. Like it's just like a band doing great music, and nobody's giving them a chance. You know, like well, there's a reason to that. And there's the problem with this business right now. The problem is, is that they're not listening to the music like you are. Right. They're looking at their followers. They're looking at their mm. social media. They're looking yep. at their fan base. So a lot of times these particular producers or bands may be off the chain talented, but don't have nothing to go on as far as a fan base. You see it from an from a, a perspective like I see it. The song first, everything else is second, right? Yep. They don't see it like that, these labels. They yeah. don't see it like that at the major companies. By the way, they got a bunch of 19, 20-year-old kids going click, click, click to see how many followers you have, how many this. They're looking at all the algorithms to see how everything's flowing. It's really sad. That's yeah. why you're hearing... Me- mediocrity today, and I I believe maybe I'm wrong, and I will bring this up, and I'm going to give you a lot of credit. Beyonce wrote that whole thing about house music, and then you, as a gentleman of a statesman of this dance music scene, answered your take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad we brought this up because it was something I was thinking about at that time. And then when I saw you put the posting up, that's when I asked you, Steve, you got to come on. So I'll ask the question, like if it happened then, when you viewed the Beyonce album as a dance album, did you really feel it was a house album? Because a lot of people came out saying, house music, that's the, you know, how did you? It was influenced by house music. And enough of it was actually enough to be considered house music, but not 
a house music album per se. Not a true house music album, but I was happy just that she embraced the genre. Like, thank you. I'm not one of the ones who's like up in arms that she did it. I'm actually like, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. Like, exactly. Yeah, we want we want Beyonce shining a light on what we do. Like, maybe because like, now I got my daughters playing house music, just like when Drake redid. Um, What's the song? The um uh the Afro House song. Oh man, I forgot it just that quick. It's, uh, Su- Superman. Right. He redid Superman, changed a few lyrics. And I hear my daughter listening to oh, like, oh, you like Superman? And then I heard Drake's voice come in. I'm like, oh wow, I didn't know he actually he yeah, made a yeah. new song from Superman, the black coffee song. Yeah. So <clears throat> I wasn't mad. I was actually happy that. <clears throat> that the genre is getting some love from some commercial artists. You know, like it just shines a light on it and hopefully a new generation of people will appreciate it, which it's evident evidence that, that, that this new generation does appreciate house music because you still got great parties going on all over the world featuring house music. Right. Probably more than hip hop. Maybe. I mean, like if you really look at it, uh, unless you don't include, I mean, you have to include, if you're including like offshoots of house music, you know what I'm saying? Like there's so many different subcategories of house music, you know, but just the fact that, that that whole groove, people are still grooving to it all over the world. That's good news. You know, like so now I get excited when I see the younger generation embracing it or I see a new DJ that's 19 years old playing house music like that tells me that it's not music for old people you know what i'm saying like <laughs> it's it, it, it's music, music it's just music you music know for walkers <laughs> right hang I mean, on steve let me ask this though back in the day let's go in the cycle of life in the beginning of your career the idea of it was that you wanted to make records to go commercial pop Right. Or maybe not necessarily push it that way, but you wanted to get out of the underground. 30 years later, 35 years later, coming back. Now the acts that are pop are coming to this side. The opposite direction to get the music that you right. made, I made, others made right. to get to the forefront. Right. Crazy. Yeah, right? It, yeah. What's funny is we, yeah, we were, tr- we weren't trying to, create pop records, but we were trying to make records that were good songs that people could still play in the clubs and respect. And then we would do, and we would do other versions to make sure that the club DJs could still play it. Even if it was a little bit commercial, right? It was still, that's, that's how the remixers stayed in business was even if you had a house, I did a lot, I did remixes on other songs that you would like consider to be dance music, at least. And close to house, but they were like straight up pop. But I made a version that a DJ like you or Craig Common or whoever would play, you know, like Junior Vasquez, whoever, like Tony cool. Humphrey, like a record that Tony Humphreys would play and Junior Vasquez would play. Right. Like I was always trying to get a record that everybody would play. So that was that was my goal. It wasn't so much trying to be pop. It's just by having that approach and trying to make something that fit for a few different people, it made made it more pop.
pop because it was more accessible and more something that they could play in a prime time of the night as opposed to only in the late part of the night. You know what I mean? So then East Smooth could get us another play in late part of the night and, and Maurice, you know, because they're, they were reaching the more underground side and the deeper side. So I was able to, like I said, stay in that lane of, <clears throat> of trying to make a record that would be accessible not only to somebody in their prime time of their set when they had a more commercial audience in there, but also people doing mix show, people doing, you know, hopefully maybe some CHR stations would pick it up, you know, which CHR is like, you know, pop radio pretty much. Over hit radio. Right. Yeah. So a lot of that CC and, and, um, and crystal waters and stuff that I did, that stuff was in rotation on a lot of these, some, some, even on some of the urban stations, it was on there. So that was like, a crazy time like the early 90s when you got the number one R&B station playing house music but they weren't playing everything they just picked and chose and luckily Which songs they felt worked for their set for the their house work. music that fit their format so that's what kind of got me into that whole commercial thing was that <clears throat> my record started working for radio so I didn't want to break that formula but then I always did a dub and I always had East Move and Maurice did something, and then maybe somebody else would do another mix. We maybe somebody on the outside, outside of us, would do an even more underground mix. Yep. So, that's, how, many, uh, how many Grammy nominations you have? Let's give everybody that number. Uh, four. See, what I'm saying people. No wins, but it's okay. I'm honored just that's to have that recognition. You got the recognition, right? Yeah. Biggest record ever in your in your catalog, you would say? Your biggest one? Everybody says, wow, that's the one. Hmm. Biggest in what respect? Success. Sales. Success? Success. Monetary success or or what or or gold record, whatever, or platinum, whatever, you know, however. Let me think. Hmm. It's gotta be between Jack Your Body. Word is Love did pretty well. Yeah, that did. Um, because it was spread out among all these different countries. You know, we, we licensed to like 20 different countries on that one. So it was it was widespread. But the what I don't know. Uh, but then on the R&B side, I've got like Keep On Walking. That's right. CC Peniston. And, and We Got a Love Thing. And um <clears throat> Well, we got a love thing that's more house, but uh, the Betcha Never Find, Shantae Savage, and um, the, the I Will Survive, where I made an R&B version of I Will Survive for Shantae Savage, that that was one that I was kind of proud of because we had a vision to make an R&B version of that, which most people didn't understand. And the fact that it did so well that she had to rush and do her album because the record was taken off so much. That was pretty, pretty satisfying to see that our vision that Shantae and I had that that was able to to come to pass. You know, like so, it's a lot of a lot of different types of when you say big commercial success. Like, do I think Jack Your Body is a better record than I Will Survive or Keep On Walking? Not really, but it was groundbreaking 
that was probably one of my most free records where I just kind of was free to do whatever I wanted to do. No kind of, no kind of boundaries. Right. And I was able to take what I learned about blues progressions from, from one of my members of the management team that was a piano player. He taught me a few things about blues and I incorporated that into that record and it made it more like a record that was not just uh, a house record, but it was kind of like, it was different. It was, it was, it wasn't just a continuous groove at that point because it was, because it was a, uh, somebody just came in the room. It was a, wasn't a continuous groove. It was more a record with changes and different musical, musical yeah, almost like a bridge. And then I, and then I, and then I implemented some comedy into it because I was a, an Eddie Murphy fan. And around that time, uh, he had been imitating Mr. T and James Brown. And I was imitating him, imitating those characters, you know, when I was saying, check it out out there. You know, that's like, that's like a combination. Is that that the reason why we got that, that, that sound in your voice from that track? And that, hey, that's James, me imitating James Brown. I like going, yeah, yeah. And the woo, I don't know what the woo was, but like the jacket up out there was like, like when uh, Eddie Murphy was saying, uh, Come on over here. When he was like imitating, he was imitating Mr. T. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. We used to just joke around about that comment. I was like, I'm going to put some of that on this record. Cause it, I didn't care. You know what I mean? It was like a, wasn't no, no record executive looking at me, looking, looking over me saying, what are you doing? I just was doing whatever I thought was going to be fun for me. Like, and then when it came out, I guess it was unique enough that it, that it stood out for the UK people. Where did this acid house thing for you come like that 10 city mix you did? Where did that happen from? I was just thinking about that. Now you're making me hear that because if I did an acid mix or something, that means that acid was at its height right there. And I probably felt like, man, I got to at least embrace this a little bit. I can still do what I do, but I'm going to, I'm going to embrace some acid on it because that's like a hot sound right now. I'm going to do it and make the acid match the chord progressions that they did and the baseline that I'm going to play with it and all that and just try to do something different with acid to expose it even further, you know, because it, I didn't do like a straight up raw acid mix. I just did. A, I just added some acid to what was already kind of melodic because you got strings on there. But, when I say to you, I know what this means, but let's tell the people at home, what does that mean? What do you mean acid? You just drop some like juice on it? Oh, no. Acid is <laughs> like, no, I mean, oh, yeah. so people that don't know what acid is, it's not a drug. It's uh, not the one I'm talking about. It's, 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 a, it's a little box called a Roland TB303. You can just Google that. And that's what some of the early house music producers that did acid used to make Records, your Armando's, Pierre, uh, Spanky, all those guys, they, they were, they were experimenting with this little box that nobody was using at the time. And I was lucky enough to get one. So I was able to use it. It just makes these squelchy little. Yeah. So that's the sound that everybody remembers on that mix. Yeah. 
in that mix. That was a hot remix you did. See, this is what I'm just thinking. Is that was at the height of acid, though. That's why that worked. You know what I mean? Like it was just like those um, those the other records were like more underground kind of records. That was more like a commercial acid record. Would you say? Would you say, Steve, that your sound was based on that piano feel, like that bouncing piano? In the '90s, definitely. <clears throat> the the piano organs strings i mean i can thank other people that were doing that like marshall jefferson with the piano because his was probably one of the first ones that was like really using the piano like that he made it okay for me to pull out the piano you know what i mean like by that record taking off and then the uh what's the other one he had let's what was the other one what's the other one he had busy no, that's Pete. Was it not Let's Get Busy? It was the uh, House Music Ride the Rhythm? House Music Anthem? Ride, ride the Rhythm had the piano. Yeah, all of them. Yeah, like all his earlier stuff. Like, so when that stuff came out, you know, people liked that. And, you know, before that, I think I had only way I had dabbled in the piano was when I was going to redo uh, You Say My Day by Cheryl Lynn with the do 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 do. And I think I dabbled in. The um, Sylvester, I need you. Like so, I was messing around with that kind of stuff, but I never really released any stuff like that till Marshall came. When he came with that house music anthem, that changed the game, and saw how people reacted. And then, and then when Todd sampled it, oh man. And then the This Is Acid, when they put the, uh, when they did the uh, mix with the, that was like similar to what Todd was doing. Like everybody was being influenced by everybody, you know? Right. So, it was like, it was so like, it was- I'm not afraid to be influenced by somebody because that, if, if people are gravitating to a particular sound, think about when New Jack Swing came out. Everybody was doing New Jack Swing because Teddy Riley came up with something dope. You know what I mean? Like everything became New Jack Swing. Yep. You know? Like that so, snare was. Everywhere. I was trying to New Jack swing my house records, but it didn't. It just didn't work like that. Like it wasn't the same people. It wasn't. It didn't fit the vibe like that. But the swing did eventually work its way in. But it was just a like more of a like just on the hi hats or whatever. Right. You know? But never like the the Teddy Riley swing. That one didn't really come into play like that. I tried it. It didn't work. Back in the day, I'm gonna because we've been holding you a long time. But back in the day, nowadays with Logic and these programs, a lot of it's drag and drop and samples. Back at that time, you guys were programming everything from scratch. Am I right? Hmm. And which day? No such thing like it is now, like real easy. Well, you said back in which time? Back in the day, back when you're starting out. Uh huh. You were actually programming all that stuff. All those drum parts, all those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah everything was from scratch. Now yeah, today, just, it's like the fact. Yeah, that you yeah I actually, my first records that I did, I used the actual drum machine where you put the put hit the dot on the one, five, nine, and thirteen to go do 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 do, and then you might put some stuff do 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 do, and then you then you do your hi hats on the, and then you then you if you want to add some in between notes, you throw those in there maybe at a softer volume. Like you're actually. Piece by piece, putting the record together. Even if you can't play, you're like stepping it. Like so, for a record like Jack Your Body, I had to actually step program that whole bass line, even the bridge parts where it goes up and it comes back down. I step time that 
into the, into the into the sequencer and let the sequencer play the bass line. Oh. So yeah, and then the piano, I just played it, but they had to punch me like a million times, like because I wasn't a player, but I was just we just get a bar and then I say, oh no, do 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 like, and then I, yeah, it just was, it was it was an anomaly. That record was just like. <laughs> Something crazy. And then to, to even hear you tell us that you put it out was like, wow, I didn't know that. I, I didn't that know what? That you uh -oh. yourself in conjunction with Rocky, but you did it more on your end. Did you miss what I said? I got a freeze. I got a freeze on my end when you said that. Okay, let me say it again. To actually know that you put that out yourself. See, mm -hmm. a lot of us thought. Rocky had put that record out. I is I'm glad you cleared that up. I had no idea. Yes. Well, the music is the key. It was a it, we did it in conjunction with each other, and then right after those that record, um, after that record, uh, Shadows of Your Love and Jack Your Body came out. Then we did a deal with RCA, and and um, but those records weren't necessarily included. We had to redo certain records and everything. But just so. think about that for a second. If you didn't put that record out, the first ones, you mm -hmm. wouldn't have gotten the RCA deal. Right. Yeah. Because, and so my father being part, you know, and believing in what I was doing, even though he was super strict to me in the early days and didn't want me going to public parties and things like that because he was worried about my safety more than anything. I didn't understand that then, but I understand now that I'm, I'm a parent of four, ki four kids, you know, like that I understand that whole side. Plus there, there was no precedence of somebody being a DJ and making a living. <laughs> so for him to actually later on put money up to help me, which I borrowed money from him and I gave it back to him after we put the records out, you know, and that was, um, that was phenomenal for me to have him get behind what I was doing. From that point on, he never really questioned what I was doing, even though I wasn't taking the normal route that even my other siblings took with school and all that. Like, I went to school for a little while, then I worked, and I did this music, and I never went back to school other than just taking a few classes here and there. I never really finished. So, but he never gave me a hard time about that after that, after he saw I was doing what I love and I was putting in just as much work as I would have been in school and what I would have been doing in, at a job, you know? So uh, the job that I was working when I was doing music is the key that that was, I was watching the clock every day. Got in, I got in at eight 30 and then I kept looking at the clock. Is it four 30 yet? Four 30 yet? Four 30 yet? <laughs> then I actually wrote that music is the key. I wrote that in the bathroom at my job. Uh, I went in the bathroom and said, I don't feel good. And then I went in there and I, was, I had my little pad with me and I was writing the rap. The music is the key to set yourself free. I was like writing that out in the car, in the, in the, in the, sitting on the toilet. I wasn't even using the toilet. I was just sitting in there and I was just writing it because all these ideas were coming to me. You know, when the ideas hit you, you got you to do it. So I had the fake, fake being sick, went in there and <clears throat> wrote the song. And not too long after that, I ended up going in the studio, and that's when we and we and we put it out. Yep. And the rest was history. <laughs> you heard it from the horse's mouth. He said it right, and the rest is history. A thoroughbred, right there, a true veteran of our game. 
Don't All get right. this, man. Steven, we wish you the next part of your success to go wherever this takes you. I know you're not. I, I know you're not stopping. You have to oh, no. in you. Yeah, you know, I, I love it, and and I love just even though the industry is different now. I love different. So that's house music was different. You know, like every everything in my life has been different. Like so, I'm not afraid of different. So when I see an artist that's doing something that's that's like different from everybody else, you gravitate I'm more attracted to that than you somebody who's on the cookie cutter. Yeah, you're gravitating towards it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and I want to see them win, even though nobody else wants to help them. Like so, that's that's what skipping our that's what our initiative is like in anything that we do um, with SNS is just to <clears throat> to help that next group of people and and some of the people that came up with us we still work with our people that came up with us like we're not we're not saying we only want to work with the new generation but we're working with everybody like you know we 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 embrace those that are still doing it as well like you that's why i said hey we got to get in the studio man and and put together something i'd love to steve i'd love to thank you my friend I bow to you uh, as being our, our. Hey, I appreciate you having me, man. Like a true legendary. Man. You, you know, when they say icons, I hate to use that word, but we're going to use it. You are iconic. You did things that and set standards when a time when it didn't exist, and still being held today. <laughs> still appreciate being it. held today. You hear those records? They still hold up. Hey, that's a I lot. Appreciate it, man. We got more coming. Yeah, don't stop. Yeah, Make sure no. You send your demos to Steve because you may be the next person he signs. Yeah. You know, yep. SNSChicago.com. You can go SNS. on there and you can you can you can you can send them on send them on in there. And as yeah. for us here in New York, Chicago, and around the world, I would like to wish you a Vita Zen, a good knock, a good night <laughs> <laughs> in all languages. All Stay blessed right, and please come back next week. Because without all of you, there'd be no reason for us to be here. Because we right. need you to keep supporting all our music and keep us working. And just let us know how you, what you feel, what we do. Reach out to us. It's important. Because we can't keep doing this without hearing it from the fans that made us who we are. So good night, Steve Silk Hurley. And good night, <laughs> England and the world and New York and Chicago. We'll catch you next week right here. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Mr. Hall. All right. Cheers.